Chapter twenty six of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter twenty six. But whatsoe'er the weal or woe that heaven across her lot might throw, full well her Christian spirit knew its path of virtue, straight and true. Joanna Bailey. Not until her work of love was thus ended did Gertrude become conscious that the long continuance of her labors by night and day had worn upon her frame and utterly exhausted her strength. For a week after Mrs. Sullivan was laid in her grave, Dr. Jeremy was seriously apprehensive of a severe illness for Gertrude. But after struggling with her dangerous symptoms for several days, she rallied, and though still pale and worn by care and anxiety, was able to resume her classes at school, and make arrangements for providing herself with another home. Several homes had already been offered to her, several urgent invitations given, with a warmth and cordiality which made it difficult to decline their acceptance. But Gertrude, though deeply touched by the kindness thus manifested towards her in her loneliness and desolation, preferred to abide by her previously formed resolution to seek for herself a permanent boarding-place, and when the grounds on which she based her decision were understood by her friends, they approved her course, ceased to importune her, and manifested a sincere wish to be of service, by lending their aid to the furtherance of her plans. Mrs. Jeremy was at first disposed to feel hurt and wounded by Gertrude's refusal to come to them without delay, and consider herself established for any length of time that she chose to remain. And the doctor himself was so peremptory with his, "'Come, Gertrude,' come right at home with us, don't say a word, that she was afraid lest, in her weak state of health, she should be actually carried off, without a chance to remonstrate. But after he had taken upon himself to give Jane orders about packing her clothes, and sending them after her, and then locking up the house and going home herself, he gave Gertrude an opportunity to expostulate, and present her reasons for wishing to decline the generous proposal." All her reasoning upon general principles, however, proved insufficient to convince the warm-hearted couple. It was all nonsense about independent position. She would be perfectly independent with them, and her company would be such a pleasure that she need feel no hesitation in accepting their offer, and might be sure she would herself be conferring a favor, instead of being the party obliged. At last she was compelled to make use of an argument which had greatly influenced her own mind, and would, she felt sure, carry no little weight with it in the doctor's estimation. "'Dr. Jeremy,' said she, "'I hope you will not condemn in me a motive which has, I confess, strengthened my firmness in this matter. I should be unwilling to mention it, if I did not know that you are so far acquainted with the state of affairs between Mr. Graham and myself as to understand, and perhaps in some degree sympathize with, my feelings. You know that he was opposed to my leaving them and remaining here this winter.' and must suspect that, when we parted, there was not a perfectly good understanding between us. He hinted that I should never be able to support myself, and should be driven to a life of dependence. And since the salary which I receive from Mr. W. is sufficient for all my wants, I am anxious to be so situated, on Mr. Graham's return, that he will perceive that my assurance, or boast, if I must call it so, that I could earn my own living, was not without foundation." So Graham thought, without his sustaining power, you would soon come to beggary, did he? With your talents, too. That's just like him. Oh, no, no, replied Gertrude. I did not say that. But I seemed to him a mere child, and he did not realize that, in giving me an education, he had, as it were, paid my expenses in advance. It was very natural he should distrust my capacity. 
he had never seen me compelled to exert myself. "'I understand, I understand,' said the doctor. "'He thought you would be glad enough to come back to them. "'Yes, yes, just like him.' "'Well, now,' said Mrs. Jeremy, "'I don't believe he thought any such thing. "'He was provoked, and didn't mind what he said. Ten to one he will never think of it again. "'And it seems to me it is only a kind of pride in Gertrude "'to care anything about it.' "'I don't know about that, wife,' said the doctor. "'If it is pride, it's an honourable pride, that I like, "'and I am not sure, but, if I were in Gertrude's place, "'I should feel just as she does. "'So I shan't urge her to do any other ways than she proposes. "'She can have a boarding-place, and yet spend a good share of her time with us, "'what with running in and out, coming to spend days, and so on. "'And she doesn't need to be told that, in case of any sickness or trouble, "'our doors are always open to her.' "'No, indeed,' said Mrs. Jeremy. "'And if you feel set about it, Gertie, dear, "'I am sure I shall want you to do whatever pleases you best. "'But one thing I do insist on, "'and that is, when you leave this house, "'which must look dreary enough to you now, "'this very day, go home with me, "'and stay until you get recruited.' "'Gertrude, gladly consenting to a short visit, "'compromised the matter by accompanying them without delay. "'And it was chiefly owing to the doctor's persevering skill "'and care bestowed upon his young guest, "'and the kind and motherly nursing of Mrs. Jeremy, that she escaped the illness which had so severely threatened her. Mr. and Mrs. W., who had felt great sympathy for Gertrude, in consequence of the acquaintance they had had with the trying nature of her winter's experience, pressed her to come to their house, and remain until the return of Mr. Graham and Emily. But on being assured by her that she was quite unaware of the period of their absence, and should not probably reside with them for the future, they were satisfied that she acted within wisdom and judgment in at once providing herself with an independent situation. Mr. and Mrs. Arnold, who had been constant in their attentions, both to Mrs. Sullivan and Gertrude, and were the only persons, except the physician, who had been admitted to the sick-room of the invalid, felt that they had a peculiar claim to the guardianship and care of the doubly orphaned girl, and were not slow to urge upon her to become a member of their household and accept of their protection limiting their invitation, as the W.s had done, to the time when Emily should be back from the south. Mr. Arnold's family, however, being large, and his house and salary small in proportion, true benevolence alone prompted this proposal, and on Gertrude's acquainting his economical and prudent wife with the ample means she enjoyed from her own exertions, and the decision she had formed of procuring an independent home, she received the warm approbation of both and found in the latter an excellent adviser and assistant. Mrs. Arnold had a widowed sister, who was in the habit of adding to her moderate income by receiving into her family, as boarders, a few young ladies, who came to the city for purposes of education. Gertrude did not know this lady personally, but had heard her warmly praised, and she indulged the hope that through her friend, the clergyman's wife, she may obtain with her an agreeable, and not too expensive residence. In this she was not disappointed. Mrs. Warren had fortunately vacant, at this time, a large and cheerful front chamber, and Mrs. Arnold, having recommended Gertrude in the warmest manner, suitable terms were agreed upon, and the room immediately placed at her disposal. Mrs. Sullivan had bequeathed to her all her furniture, a part of which had lately been purchased, and was, in accordance with Willie's injunctions, most excellent, both in material and workmanship and Mrs. Arnold and her two eldest daughters insisted that, in consideration of her recent fatigue and bereavement, she should consent to attend only to her school duties, and leave to them the task of furnishing her room with such articles as she preferred to have placed there, 
and superintending the packing away of all other movables, for Gertrude was unwilling that anything should be sold. It was a great relief to be thus spared the cruel trial of seeing the house her lost friend had taken so much pleasure and pride in, stripped and left desolate. And though, on first entering her apartment at Mrs. Warren's, a deep sadness crept into her heart at the sight of the familiar furniture, she could not but think, as she observed the neatness, care, and taste, with which everything had been arranged for her reception, that it would be a sin to repine, and call oneself wretched and alone in a world which contained hearts so quick to feel, and hands so ready to labor, as those that had interested themselves for her. On entering the dining-room the first evening after she took up her residence at Mrs. Warren's, she expected to meet only strangers at the tea-table, but was agreeably disappointed at the sight of Fanny Bruce, who, left in Boston while her mother and brother were spending the winter in travelling, had now been several weeks an inmate of Mrs. Warren's house. Fanny was a schoolgirl, twelve or thirteen years of age, and having, for some summers past, been a near neighbour to Gertrude, had been in the habit of seeing her frequently at Mr. Graham's, had sometimes begged flowers from her, borrowed books, and obtained assistance in her fancy-work. She admired Gertrude exceedingly, had hailed with great delight the prospect of knowing her better, as she hoped to do at Mrs. Warren's, and when she met the gaze of her large dark eyes, and saw a smile of pleasure overspread her countenance at the sight of a familiar face, she felt emboldened to come forward, shake hands, and beg that Miss Flint would sit next her at the table. Fanny Bruce was a girl of good disposition and warm heart, but she had been much neglected by her mother, whose chief pride was in her son, the same Ben of whom we have previously spoken. She had often been left behind in some boarding-house, while her pleasure-loving mother and indolent brother passed their time in journeying, and had not always been so fortunately situated as at present. A sense of loneliness, a want of sympathy in any of her pursuits, had been a source of great unhappiness to the poor child, who laboured under the painful consciousness that but little interest was felt by any one in her improvement or happiness. Gertrude had not been long at Mrs. Warren's, before she observed that Fanny occupied an isolated position in the family. She was a few years younger than her companions, three dressy misses, who could not condescend to admit her into their oblique, and Mrs. Warren's time was so much engrossed by household duties that she took but little notice of her. Her apparent loneliness could not fail to excite the compassion of one who was herself suffering from recent sorrow and bereavement and although the quiet and privacy of her own room were at this time grateful to Gertrude's feelings, pity for poor Fanny induced her to invite her frequently to come and sit with her, and she often so far forgot her own griefs as to exert herself in providing entertainment for her young visitor, who on her part considered it privilege enough to share Gertrude's retirement, read her books, and feel confident of her friendship. During the month of March, which was unusually stormy, Fanny spent almost every evening with Gertrude, and she, who at first felt that she was making a sacrifice of her own comfort and ease by giving another such constant access to her apartment, came at last to realize the force of Uncle True's prophecy, that in her efforts for the happiness of others she would at last find her own. For Fanny's lively and often amusing conversation drew Gertrude from the contemplation of her trials, and the interest and affection she awakened saved her from the painful consciousness of her solitary situation. April arrived, and still no further news from Emily. Gertrude's heart ached with a vain longing to once more pour out her griefs on the bosom of that dear friend, and find in her consolation, encouragement, and support. 
She longed to tell her how many times during the winter she had sighed for the gentle touch of the soft hand which was wont to rest so lovingly on her head, the sound of that sweet voice whose very tones were comforting. For some time Gertrude wrote regularly, but of late she had not known where to direct her letters, and since Mrs. Sullivan's death there had been no communication between her and the travellers. She was sitting at her window one evening, thinking of that group of friends whom she had loved with a daughter's and a sister's love, and who were now separated from her by distance, or that great barrier, death, when she was summoned below stairs to see Mr. Arnold and his daughter Anne. After the usual civilities and inquiries, Miss Arnold turned to Gertrude and said, "'Of course you have heard the news, Gertrude.' "'No,' replied Gertrude. "'I have heard nothing special.' "'What?' exclaimed Mr. Arnold. "'Have you not heard of Mr. Graham's marriage?' Gertrude started up in surprise. "'Do you really mean so, Mr. Arnold? Mr. Graham married? When? To whom?' "'To the widow Holbrook, a sister-in-law of Mr. Clinton's. She has been staying at Havana with a party from the north, and the Grahams met her there.' "'But Gertrude,' asked Miss Arnold, "'how does it happen you had not heard of it? It is in all the newspapers.' married in New Orleans, J. H. Graham, Esquire, of Boston, to Mrs. Somebody or Other Holbrook. I have not seen a newspaper for a day or two, replied Gertrude. And Miss Graham's blindness, I suppose, prevents her from writing, said Anne. But I should have thought Mr. Graham would have sent wedding compliments. Gertrude made no reply, and Miss Arnold continued laughingly. I suppose his bride engrosses all his attention. Do you know anything of this Mrs. Holbrook? asked Gertrude. "'Not much,' answered Mr. Arnold. "'I have seen her occasionally at Mr. Clinton's. "'She is a handsome, showy woman, fond of society, I should think.' "'I have seen her very often,' said Anne. "'She is a coarse, noisy, dashing person, "'just the one to make Miss Emily miserable.' Gertrude looked distressed, and Mr. Arnold glanced reprovingly at his daughter. "'Anne,' said he, "'are you sure you speak advisedly?' "'Belle Clinton is my authority, father. "'I only judge from what I used to hear her say at school "'about her Aunt Bella, as she always used to call her. "'Did Isabel represent her aunt so unfavorably?' "'Not intentionally,' replied Anne. "'She meant the greatest praise. "'But I never liked anything she told us about her.' "'We will not condemn her until we can decide upon acquaintance,' "'said Mr. Arnold, mildly. "'Perhaps she will prove the very reverse of what you suppose her.' "'Can you tell me anything concerning Emily?' asked Gertrude, "'and whether Mr. Graham is soon to return?' "'Nothing,' said Miss Arnold. "'I have seen only the notice in the papers. "'When did you hear from them yourself?' Gertrude mentioned the date of her letter from Mrs. Ellis, the account she had given of a gay party from the North, and suggested the probability that the present Mrs. Graham was the widow she had described. "'The same, undoubtedly,' said Mr. Arnold. Their knowledge of facts was so slight, however, that little remained to be said concerning the marriage, and other topics of conversation were introduced. But Gertrude found it impossible to give her thoughts to any other subject. The matter was one of such vital importance to Emily, that her mind constantly recurred to it, and she found it difficult to keep pace with Anne Arnold's rapidly flowing words and ideas. The necessity which at last arose, of replying to a question which she had not at all understood, was fortunately obviated by the sudden entrance of Dr. and Mrs. Jeremy. The former held in his hand a sealed letter, directed to Gertrude, in the handwriting of Mr. Graham. And as he handed it to her, he rubbed his hands, and looking at Anne Arnold, exclaimed, "'Now, Miss Anne, we shall hear all about these famous nuptials.' Finding her visitors thus eager to learn the contents of her letter, 
Gertrude dispensed with ceremony, broke the seal, and hastily perused its contents. The envelope contained two or three pages closely written by Mrs. Ellis, and also a somewhat lengthy note from Mr. Graham. Surprised as Gertrude was at any communication from one who had parted from her in anger, her strongest desire was to hear particularly from Emily, and she therefore gave the preference to the housekeeper's document, that being most likely to contain the desired information. It ran as follows. New York, March 31, 1852. Dear Gertrude, as there were plenty of Boston folks at the wedding, I dare say you have heard before this of Mr. Graham's marriage. He married the Witter Holbrook, the same I wrote you about. She was determined to have him, and she's got him. I don't hesitate to say he's got the worst of the bargain. He likes a quiet life, and he's lost his chance of that, poor man, for she's the greatest hand for company that ever I saw. She followed Mr. Graham up pretty well at Havana, but I guess he thought better of it, and didn't really mean to have her. When we got to New Orleans, however, she was there, and the long and short of it is, she carried her point and married him. Emily behaved beautifully. She never said a word about it, and always treated the widder as pleasantly as could be. But dear me, how will our Emily get along with so many young folks as there are about all the time now, and so much noise and confusion? For my part, I ain't used to it, and don't pretend that I think it is agreeable. The new lady is civil enough to me, now she's married. I dare say she thinks it stands her in hand, as long as she's one of the family, and I've been in it so long. But I suppose you've been wondering what had become of us, Gertrude, and will be surprised to find we've got so far as New York, on our way home. My way home, I should say, for I'm the only one that talks of coming at present. The truth is, I kept meaning to write while we were in New Orleans, but there was so much going on I didn't get a chance. And after that horrid steamboat from Charleston here, I wasn't good for anything for a week. But Emily was so anxious to have you written to that I couldn't put it off any longer than until today. Poor Emily isn't very well. I don't mean that she's downright sick. It's low spirits and nervousness, I suppose, more than anything. She gets tired and worried very quick, and is easily startled and disturbed, which didn't used to be the case. I think likely it's the new wife, and all the nieces, and other disagreeable things. She never complains, and nobody would know but what she was pleased to have her father married again. But she hasn't seemed quite happy all winter, and now it troubles me to see how sad she looks sometimes. She talks a sight about you, and felt dreadfully not to get any more letters. To come to the principal thing, however, they are all going to Europe. Emily and all. I take it it's the new wife's idea. But whoever proposed the thing, it's all settled now. Mr. Graham wanted me to go, but I would not hear of such a thing. I would as soon be hung as venture on the sea again. And I told him so up and down. So now he has written for you to go with Emily. And if you were not afraid of seasickness, I hope you won't refuse. For it would be dreadful for her to have a stranger. And you know she always needs somebody, on account of her blindness. I do not think she has the least wish to go. But she would not ask to be left behind, for fear her father should think she did not like the new wife. As soon as they sail, which will be the last of April, I shall come back to the house, in D, and see to things there while they are away. I am going to write a postscript to you from Emily, and I believe I will add nothing more myself, except that we shall be very impatient to hear your answer, and I must say once more that I hope you will not refuse to go with Emily. Yours very truly, Sarah H. Ellis. The postscript contained the following. I need not tell my darling Gertrude how much I have missed her, and long to have her with me again. How I have thought of her by night and day, 
and prayed God to strengthen and fit her for her many trials and labors. The letter written to me soon after Mr. Cooper's death is the last that has reached me, and I do not know whether Mrs. Sullivan is still living. Write to me at once, my dear child, if you cannot come to us. Father will tell you of our plans, and ask you to accompany us to Europe. My heart will be light if I can take my dear Gertie with me, but not if she leave any other duty behind. I trust to you, my love, to decide aright. You have heard of Father's marriage. It is a great change for us all, but will, I trust, result in happiness. Mrs. Graham has two nieces who are with us at the hotel. They are to be of our party to go abroad, and are, I understand, very beautiful girls, especially Belle Clinton, whom you have seen in Boston some years ago. Mrs. Ellis is very tired of writing, and I must close with assuring my dearest Gertrude of the devoted affection of Emily Graham. It was with great curiosity that Gertrude unfolded Mr. Graham's epistle. She thought it would be awkward for him to address her, and wondered much whether he would maintain his severe and authoritative tone, or condescend to explain and apologize. Had she known him better, she would have been assured that nothing would ever induce him to do the latter, for he was one of those persons who never believed themselves in the wrong. The letter ran thus. Miss Gertrude Flint, I am married, and intend to go abroad on the 28th of April. My daughter will accompany us, and, as Mrs. Ellis dreads the sea, I am induced to propose that you join us in New York, and attend the party as a companion to Emily. I have not forgotten the ingratitude with which you once slighted a similar offer on my part, and nothing would compel me to give you another opportunity to manifest such a spirit, but a desire to promote the happiness of Emily and a sincere wish to be of service to a young person who has been in my family so long that I feel a friendly interest in providing for her. I thus put it in your powers, by complying with our wishes, to do away from my mind the recollection of your past behavior, and, if you choose to return to us, I shall enable you to maintain the place and appearance of a lady. As we sail the last of the month, it is important you should be here in the course of a fortnight, and, if you will write and name the day, I will myself meet you at the boat. Mrs. Ellis, being anxious to return to Boston, I hope you will come as soon as possible. As you will be obliged to incur expenses, I enclose a sum of money sufficient to cover them. If you have contracted debts, let me know to what amount, and I will see that all is made right before you leave. Trusting to your being now come to a sense of your duty, I am ready to subscribe myself, your friend, J. H. Graham. Gertrude was sitting near her lamp, whose light fell directly upon her face, which, as she glanced over Mr. Graham's note, flushed crimson with wounded pride. Dr. Jeremy, who was watching her countenance, observed that she changed color, and during the few minutes that Mr. and Miss Arnold stayed to hear the news, he gave an occasional glance of defiance at the letter, and as soon as they were gone, begged to be made acquainted with its contents, assuring Gertrude that if she did not let him know what Graham said, he should believe it a thousand times more insulting than it really was. He writes, said Gertrude, to invite me to accompany them to Europe. Indeed, said Dr. Jeremy, with a low whistle, and he thinks you'll be silly enough to pack up and start off at a minute's notice. Why, Gertie, said Mrs. Jeremy, you'll like to go, shan't you, dear? It will be wonderful. Delightful nonsense! Mrs. Jerry, exclaimed the doctor, what is there delightful, I want to know, in traveling about, with an arrogant old tyrant, his blind daughter, upstart dashy wife, and her two fine lady nieces, a pretty position Gertrude would be in, a slave to the whims of all that company. Why, Dr. Jeremy, interrupted his wife, you forget Emily. 
Emily, to be sure, she's an angel, and never would impose upon anybody, least of all her own pet. But she'll have to play second fiddle herself. And I'm mistaken if she doesn't find it pretty hard to defend her rights and maintain a comfortable position in her father's enlarged family circle. So much more the need, then, said Gertrude, that someone should be enlisted in her interests to ward off the approach of every annoyance. Do you mean, then, to put yourself in the breach? asked the doctor. I mean to accept Mr. Graham's invitation, replied Gertrude, and join Emily at once. But I trust the harmony that seems to subsist between her and her new connections will continue undisturbed, so that I shall have no occasion to take up arms on her account, and on my own I do not entertain a single fear. Then you really think you shall go? said Mrs. Jeremy. I do, said Gertrude. Nothing but my duty to Mrs. Sullivan and her father led me to think of leaving Emily. That duty is at an end. And now that I can be of use to her, and she wishes me back, I cannot hesitate a moment. I see very plainly from Mrs. Ellis's letter that Emily is not happy, and nothing which I can do to make her so must be neglected. Only think, Mrs. Jeremy, what a friend she has been to me. I know it, said Mrs. Jeremy, and I dare say you will enjoy the journey, in spite of all the scarecrows the doctor sets up to frighten you. But still, I declare, it does seem a sacrifice for you to leave your beautiful room and all your comforts, for such an uncertain sort of life as one has travelling with a large party. Sacrifice, interrupted the doctor, it's the greatest sacrifice that I ever heard of. It is not merely giving up three hundred and fifty dollars a year of her own earning, and as pleasant a home as there is in Boston. It is relinquishing all the independence that she has been striving after. And which she was so anxious to maintain that she would not accept of anybody's hospitality for more than a week or two. No, doctor, said Gertrude warmly, nothing that I do for Emily's sake can be called a sacrifice. It is my greatest pleasure. Gertie always finds her pleasure in doing what is right, remarked Mrs. Jeremy. Oh, no, said Gertrude, my wishes would often lead me astray, but not in this case. The thought that our dear Emily was dependent upon a stranger for all those little attentions that are only acceptable from those she loves would make me miserable. Our happiness has for years been almost wholly in each other, and when one has suffered, the other has suffered also. I must go to her. I cannot think of doing otherwise. I wish I thought, muttered Dr. Jeremy, that the sacrifice you make would be half appreciated. But there's Graham, I'll venture to say, thinking it will be the greatest favor in the world to take you back again. Perhaps he addresses you as a beggar. It wouldn't be the first time he's done such a thing. I wonder what would have induced poor Philip Amory to go back. Then, in a louder tone, he inquired, Has he made any apology in his letter for past unkindness? I do not think he considered any to be needed, replied Gertrude. Then he didn't make any sort of excuse for his ungentlemanly behavior? I might have known he wouldn't. I declare, it's a shame you should be exposed to any more such treatment. But I always did hear that women were self-forgetful in their friendship, and I believe it. Gertrude makes an excellent friend. Mrs. Jerry, we must cultivate her regard, and sometime or other perhaps make a loud call upon her services. And if ever you do, sir, I shall be ready to respond to it. If there is a person in the world who owes a debt to society, it is myself. I hear the world called cold, selfish, and unfeeling, but it has not been so to me. I should be ungrateful if I did not cherish a spirit of universal love. How much more so if I did not feel bound heart and hand to those dear friends who have bestowed upon me such affection as no orphan ever found before. Gertrude, said Mrs. Jeremy, 
I believe that you were right in leaving Emily when you did, and that you are right in returning to her now. And if your being such a good girl as you are now is at all due to her, she certainly has a great claim upon you. She has a claim indeed, Mrs. Jeremy. It was Emily who first taught me the difference between right and wrong. And she is going to reap the benefit of that knowledge in you, said the doctor, in continuation of her remark. That's fair. But if you are resolved to take this European tour, you will be busy enough with your preparations. Do you think Mr. W. will be willing to give you up? I hope so, said Gertrude. I am sorry to be obliged to ask it of him, for he has been very indulgent to me, and I have been absent from school two weeks out of this winter already. But as there will want only a few months to the summer vacation, he will perhaps be able to supply my place. I shall speak to him about it to-morrow. Mrs. Jeremy now interested herself in the details of Gertrude's arrangements, offered an attic room for the storage of her furniture, gave up to her a dressmaker whom she had engaged for herself, and before she left a plan was laid out, by following which Gertrude would be enabled to start for New York in less than a week. Mr. W., on being applied to, relinquished Gertrude, though deeply regretting, as he told her, to lose so valuable an assistant. And after a few days busily occupied in preparation, she bade farewell to the tearful Fanny Bruce, the bustling doctor, and his kind-hearted wife, all of whom accompanied her to the railroad station. She promised to write to the Jeremies, and they, on their part, agreed to forward to her any letters that might arrive from Willie. In less than a fortnight from the time of her departure, Mrs. Ellis returned to Boston, and brought news of the safe conclusion of Gertrude's journey. A letter, received a week after, by Mrs. Jeremy, announced that they should sail in a few days. She was therefore surprised, when a second epistle was put into her hands, dated the day succeeding that on which she supposed Mr. Graham's party to have left the country. It was as follows. New York, April 29th. My dear Mrs. Jeremy, as yesterday was the day on which we expected to sail for Europe, you will be somewhat astonished to hear that we are yet in New York, and still more so to learn that the foreign tour is now indefinitely postponed. Only two days since, Mr. Graham was seized with his old complaint, the gout, and the attack proved so violent as seriously to threaten his life. Although to-day somewhat relieved, and considered by his physician out of immediate danger, he remains a great sufferer, and a sea voyage is pronounced impracticable for months to come. His great anxiety is to be at home, and as soon as it is possible for him to bear the journey, we shall all hasten to the house in D. I enclose a note from Mrs. Ellis. It contains various directions which Emily is desirous she should receive, and as we did not know how to address her, I have sent it to you, trusting to your kindness to see it forwarded. Mrs. Graham and her nieces, who had been anticipating much pleasure from going abroad, are, of course, greatly disappointed at the entire change in their plans for the summer. It is particularly trying to Miss Clinton, as her father has been absent more than a year, and she was hoping to meet him in Paris. It is impossible that either Emily or myself should personally regret a journey of which we felt only dread, and, were it not for Mr. Graham's illness being the cause of its postponement, we should both, I think, find it hard not to realize a degree of selfish satisfaction in the prospect of returning to the dear old place in D, where we hope to be established in the course of the next month. I say we, for neither Mr. Graham nor Emily will hear of my leaving them again. With the kindest regards to yourself— and my friend the doctor. I am yours, very sincerely, Gertrude Flint. End of chapter 26